Lord, as we just sang and, and as the Magi, would we fall down upon our knees, if not, Lord, demonstrably, physically, Lord, but at least in our hearts over who the person is that we celebrate on Christmas. Lord, I pray that all of the cliches and all of the sentimentality and all of the trappings could be stripped away from your people this year and that you would allow them, in your grace, the light of your Son, that they would see the significance of who he is, what he has done, and what he is to do. Lord, may you be magnified in the people of Riverside by doing that this year. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are moving closer and even deeper into the Christmas season with the big day only a week and a half away. It's hard to believe. And just like about every year, to be honest with you, I am fighting a battle to keep the right perspective over it all. I want, I want my enjoyment of this time of year to be about the reason for the season. But to be honest, every time December comes around, I find this actually hard to do, and I have to actually battle in my mind to keep the birth of Jesus Christ at the forefront of the Christmas season. And this is for several reasons, I think. Number one, there's all the extra activity at church that just makes things busier, and, and therefore it makes it harder to keep my mind on the main thing. All, all good things but they require extra energies and thoughts. And secondly, all, all the added activities at home, the, the decorating of the tree and putting up the exterior lights and making the treats and writing the cards and all of those things that we do, they can actually make it easy for me to lose focus. And then third, I'm a student again this year, and that means I have some extra items on my plate that are occupying my mind and make it harder for me to, to push through and think rightly. And then fourth, and finally, there are the things that I call the necessary and the not-so-necessary distractions of the season. The shopping and the commercials, and the shopping and the advertisements, and the shopping and the fighting the materialistic pull, all of that. And perhaps you can relate to what I'm talking about. Maybe you also have to fight the battle of perspective at this time of year. I do every year. Maybe that's you as well. And this is why it has become so important for me to ask a simple question each December, to really ponder it each December, and when answered, it allows me to simplify my thinking, to settle my mind in happy peace over the superlative reality of this season. It allows me to cut through and see what it's about and not be so worried about all the secondary things. And this question is, who is this person that we celebrate every December 25th? Now, I don't just mean the quick, simple answer, Jesus the Savior was born. I don't just mean this, the quick, simple answer that we say and then we move on. I mean the true person behind that statement. Who is Jesus? And what, what do we mean when we say that he is the Savior? And why 
is it so significant that he was born? In other words, what kind of a child is this? Now, when we consider the words of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I think we find our answer that he is the supreme Lord. I want to emphasize that word supreme today because it's so well-fitting when it comes to Jesus. The word supreme, it means the highest in rank or authority. It is one who is paramount. It is a person of the highest quality of the utmost importance. Well, my friends, Christmas is about the joyful honoring of the supreme Lord, Jesus Christ. The paramount God and Savior who stands above and rules over all of his creation. Now, a brief word of context about this book. The recipients of this letter of Hebrews were evidently, based upon statements later on in the text that we could explore, but for the sake of time, we won't be able to today. The recipients of this letter were evidently, they were facing some pretty tough persecution for their faith. And some of them were being tempted to return to their pagan former lives, falling away from the gospel of God. And this letter was evidently written with the intention of strongly encouraging them to remain with and in Jesus Christ. So in other words, when we see this book, we see a book full of theology, deep theology, that is meant to encourage Christians. Did you catch that? Deep theology about Jesus was crucial for their hard life situation. Not the piddly little stuff. The deep stuff mattered to them. Now, there are nine ways that this passage reveals Jesus Christ as supreme. And we're going to treat each of these briefly for the sake of time and in order to just get the big picture of who Jesus is. And my prayer that I prayed for you this morning in my study and I've been praying this week is that this is going to give us a bigger view of Jesus, a greater appreciation for Jesus, a deeper worship of Jesus, and an altogether better December 25th because then it'll be about the real Jesus. So first of all, Jesus Christ is supreme in that his word is superior. Notice verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. My friends, God wanted, and he still wants today, his created people to know him. And he has been revealing himself from the very beginning to created beings in two ways. First of all, God has revealed himself to those people whom he has created in general revelation, theologians call it. General General revelation is where God reveals himself through the natural world of his creation. For instance, Psalm chapter 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The glory of nature, the glory of the created things around us, those things are meant to show us that there is an awesome God who has made such things. So he reveals himself through the things that he has made. That's the first way. Secondly, he reveals himself through something called special revelation. 
or direct revelation. And this is where God reveals himself through the direct communication with people. Now, throughout the Bible, he did this through dreams and visions and prophetic utterances and angelic proclamations and, of course, through the scriptures, the Bible. It says, long ago, the writer of this letter communicates, God spoke to the fathers of Israel by the prophets of Israel. He communicated to his people through the prophetic utterances of other called out people, and they communicated God's word to them. But what these past prophets ultimately communicated were the things about the coming one. They communicated things about the God-man who would come and who would save and who would lead God's people. Listen to what Jesus himself said about the communication of those prophets after he had risen from the dead. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's walking alongside of a road to a little town called Emmaus with two disciples. And it says in Luke 24, verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus begins to walk through all the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And as they're walking, he's explaining to them that book after book, prophet after prophet, word after word was all about him. All the things that those prophets wrote about and all the things that they foretold were about Jesus. He was the ultimate message behind all that they said all of the different roads that they were on, all of the different ways that they pointed, all of them eventually came together in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And now, in those last days, the eschatos, the the end of days that we live in today, God has spoken to us in an even better way. As he has spoken to us, it says, directly through Jesus. Notice again verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. By Jesus has come the complete gospel message that he related while he was on earth. And we've seen this already in the book of Matthew as we've been preaching through it. And then he did this, he related this through his apostles in the days that followed his return to heaven in glory. And finally... He has done this as he relates the word of God, the Bible, that has been passed down to us by means of the Spirit of God through those apostles. The very book that many of you are holding in your hands, the word of Jesus Christ that has been passed down to you. It is the message of the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior and has made provision for the salvation of God's people. This is the message that was long prophesied, and this is the message that has now been revealed by the Lord. And my friends, it is a word that must not be rejected or neglected. Look at chapter 2 at the very beginning, chapter 2, verse 1. He goes on to say, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Stop right there. He's talking about what he's already said in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. 
we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So this is not a word to be neglected or rejected. This is the word of God that must be received in faith when it is heard. Well, in Jesus, we have the superior, clear gospel message declared to us. The mysteries of the Old Testament that pointed to him, they have now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the utterance of the gospel that Jesus laid down his life on the cross in payment for our sins and took it back up again in resurrection, the gospel message has been passed down to us. And now in pulpit after pulpit across this world, the gospel is proclaimed. On street corners, it is acknowledged and related to sinners. And oh, might it spread even further. So in Jesus, we have this superior, clear gospel message declared to us. He is supreme. Secondly, Jesus Christ is supreme in that he is placed over all things. Look again at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. To be the heir is to be endowed with the rights and the authority of a son. This is the one who is given privilege of place with the Father. Al Mohler writes, to be an heir was to be invested with everything. The Son is given full authority. To do business with the Son means to do business with the Father. Moreover, if you are going to know this Father, you can only do so through His Son. End quote. This was alluded to by several of the prophets, including the psalmist, when he wrote of the Lord who would come in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. God prophesied that Jesus would have all of the ends of the earth, all of the nations would be his possession. If you remember from the book of Matthew, when Satan tries to tempt Jesus and he shows him all the kingdoms on the world and he says, I'll give you all of these if you'll just bow down to me. And Jesus wisely, wisely says no. And isn't it so glorious that he does say no? Because these kingdoms were already meant for him. He's the heir of all things. They belong to him and he has authority over them. As the heir, Jesus would be given full ownership and authority over all of God's creation. So what does that mean for us? Well, this Jesus is the one whom we owe our full obedience. He is the master who has the right to direct us because he is the heir of God who has been given the authority and the right of place and the ownership to be able to tell us, this is my will, go and do it. So we owe Jesus our full, full obedience. Third this morning, Jesus Christ is supreme in that he is the creator of all things. 
Look at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, here we get the backstory on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where God made all that has been made. We learn that the Father God's agent in creation was none other than his Son. Jesus himself the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God, who didn't begin on Christmas, but has always been, but was born as a man on Christmas. Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God, was the direct creator of all the world. There are three persons of the Trinity, three persons in the triune God, according to Scripture. It is the Father, it is the Son, it is the Holy Spirit, and they, each of them, had an important part to play in creation. But here we learn that the Son, in the mystery of God's creative activity, was actually the primary agent who did the making. And this is consistent with other areas in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 3, speaks of the Word, who is Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, how he says that God the Father is the creator, and then he says that Jesus the Son is the creator. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Together in perfect unity, they brought about everything that is anything. My friends, when you look down at your hand and consider the intricacies of it, the tendons, the, the bones, the skin, the ability that it has, or when you walk outside after this worship service is over and you see a lot of green things, or when you gaze at your loved ones around your Christmas tree, every single thing that you behold is created and has been created by Jesus. The babe in the manger is the one who made the manger and everything else. Does not that make the incarnation, the fact that Jesus became a man, all that much more incredible and awe-inspiring. That the maker of it all, as we sang, is the one whom they were able to hold in their hands. And one day I'm going to embrace with my arms. Fourth, Jesus Christ is supreme in that he is the radiance of God's glory. Look at verse 3. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there was something referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. It's a weird word. The Shekinah glory of God. This was a bright, shining visible display of glory, a light of glory that manifested the majesty of God. 
It was a glory that could actually be seen by human beings with their eyes. For instance, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 28, the prophet writes, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. My friends, as it did to Ezekiel, the sight of this radiant glory had and has a profound humbling effect upon everyone who sees it. But looking at Christ, we actually see the fullest expression of the glory of God. Christ, who as we're about to see, shares the divine nature as the second person of the Trinity, shines the glory of God to all of those who know him. In his perfections, in his character, in his power and wisdom, in his sovereign control, in his merciful love, we see in a human being, a divine human being, the radiant glory of God. And note, he himself, Jesus, will be the one, the Lamb, who shines bright in the new Jerusalem that will one day come that we all hope to see. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. My friends, when you comprehend the wonder of the gospel and see Jesus through faith, you are spiritually beholding the glory of God himself and the splendor of his person and work. Your eyes don't yet see him, but in your heart you grasp the gospel and you see the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. He is the radiant glory of God. Fifth, Jesus Christ is supreme in that he is God. He is God. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus the Son and God the Father, as well as God the Spirit, are of one divine essence. They are one substance or one being or nature. There is one God, my friends, one nature he has, yet there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. And this is a marvelous, mind-boggling mystery, but it is absolutely true because the Bible says that it's true. No mere human son could ever be said to be the exact imprint of his human father. They may look alike physically, they may have a lot of similar personality traits, but they're not the same. Yet Jesus, the God-man, is the exact imprint of the Father God. He shares the same nature as God. He is a replica, not in the sense that there are two gods, 
but that in one person of the Godhead, the Son, is the perfect image of another person of the Godhead, the Father. Which is why Jesus is able to say, when you see me, you see the Father. The Son represents the being of the Father, His essential nature to the world, because He is of the same nature as the Father. The Apostle Paul writes about this when he writes to the Philippians that Jesus is, in Philippians 2 verse 6, in the form of God. He says the same thing to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Later in that same letter, he writes of Jesus in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. The one born as a man on Christmas is none other than God himself made flesh for us. We don't worship a cute little infant who stays a cute little infant. We worship God himself who took on the humiliation of becoming a human being, born in a stall for the purpose of becoming a king who would first suffer and bleed and die for us. God himself, Emmanuel, with us that he might save us. Number six, Jesus Christ is supreme in that he holds everything in its place. Verse three, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus did not just make creation, he sustains creation. Here we see the sovereign hand of Jesus over everything. He is continually willing and organizing and carrying forward everything in his created order until it reaches its divine end. He is guiding the entire universe from the galactic level down to the smallest speck on this earth to its designed destiny. Hear what the scriptures say about Jesus. Psalm 75, verse 3. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. You think about your life and all the times where it feels like things are beginning to totter. It feels like you're about to fall over. And you look at this world and you watch the news for a whole five seconds and you see how much tottering is going on, and you begin to think, oh no, it's all about to tip. But when it does, its inhabitants can rest assured that it is Jesus who keeps it steady. He keeps the pillars in place. As Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Al Mohler again writes, if the sun ever ceased to will the universe to remain, then the universe would cease to exist. The power to create is also the power to preserve, the power to control, and the power to bring to an end. So, on Christmas, the one who is born, the one whom we celebrate, 
is the sovereign master of all time, all history, all space, all matter, and all eternity. That is something to celebrate. Seventh, Jesus Christ is supreme in that he made a cleansing for sin. Verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He made purification for sins. He, he purified people from their sins. He took darkened, sinful people, and he made them pure in God's eyes. The reality, this reality is expounded upon much more later on in this book. In fact, I want to invite you to hold your hand here, but flip over to chapter 9 just for a moment. Flip over to chapter 9 and look with me at verses 12 through 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says in chapter 9, verse 12, that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the asher of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, there is, a, there is much metaphor here, and we don't have time to get into all of it, and I admit that this can be confusing, confusing if this is the first time you've encountered this passage. There's much metaphor here regarding the perfect heavenly tent or tabernacle of God where God's people in the Old Testament would come and offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and worship Him there. Well, here he's making a metaphor, saying that that's a metaphor for this heavenly tent, this heavenly tabernacle, this heavenly abode of God where Jesus entered into as our high priest. Well, like an Old Testament Jewish priest, Jesus entered the tent and he went into the holiest place where God's presence was especially found and he did so with blood, with the death of something or someone. And it's not with the blood, it says, of an animal sacrifice, like all of those pictures of the Old Testament that pointed to him. Not with the blood of an animal sacrifice, but with the blood to which all of those animal sacrifices pointed, with his own blood that he shed when he gave up his life on Mount Calvary, on the cross, for your sins and mine. And with this blood, it says, he secured an eternal redemption. Redemption means to purchase something out of slavery unto freedom. Well, he made a purchase with his blood, a purchase that freed his people from the consequences and the power of sin. As verse 14 states, he offered himself without blemish to God. So he was the only possible sinless sacrifice that could be offered. He offered himself sinlessly without blemish to God for the purpose of purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. My friends, when one tries, when one truly considers, when one truly considers God and his holiness, 
God in his perfection, one's conscience is riddled with guilt. When we actually contemplate who he is, our conscience becomes riddled with guilt because we know that God, the Holy One, demands and deserves holiness. He demands and deserves our perfection. And our meager attempts to work, as he says, to please this God are dead attempts. Because we are sinners through and through, and we can do nothing to merit his favor because we are spiritually dead. But Jesus, through his shed blood, his death on the cross, has made it possible for sinners to actually have a good conscience before God. That we might serve him, not out of an effort to earn his favor, but out of joy and love and esteem and gratitude for what Jesus has already done to bring us into God's favor. We do this, our consciences are cleared because of what Christ accomplished by shedding his blood and pain for us. So, Jesus, when it says in chapter 1, that he made purification for sins. Jesus has accomplished this. He has made purification for the sins of sinners like me and you. Jesus provides cleansing and forgiveness and eternal redemption and change of heart and life for those who believe in him. Eighth this morning... Jesus Christ is supreme in that he has kingly authority. Verse 3 again, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now to be at someone's right hand in Old Testament or ancient classical literature is to be in the place of favor and authority. To be at the king's right hand means that you share in the favor and authority of the king. For Jesus, that means this means that after he rose from the dead and returned to his father's side, he was declared to be above all other powers. For he now has the right and the authority of God displayed to the world. Listen to these texts. Acts chapter 5 Verses 30 and 31, it says the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My dear friends, do you see where God the Father places all honor do you see the arrow that he's holding and where it is pointing, to whom it is directing us? He puts in the Bible all of our attention upon his son, who, as you recall now, is his exact imprint and the radiance of his glory. 
God the Father is not offended when you put your focus upon the Son. We say things like, Riverside is a fellowship in Christ, joyfully committed to gathering for Him, growing in Him and going with Him. He's exalted in that because when we put the focus upon Jesus Christ, we're putting our focus upon the One who is the exact imprint and the radiance of the glory of God. So if God places all honor upon the Son who is at His right hand, then should not we do the exact same thing? Finally, number nine, Jesus Christ is supreme in that He is better than the angels. Look at verse four. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, let's be honest. This seems a little odd, doesn't it? If this is your first time, especially looking through this book, it seems a little odd that the author of this letter would declare that Jesus is superior to angels, especially after all of the enormous things that he just wrote about him. But at that time in Jewish history, there was a great deal of emphasis and discussion about angelic beings. And some of this resulted in useful, helpful theology, but much of it resulted in speculation and misinformed assertions. The same exact thing is going on all around us today about angels. As the author of this letter begins to assert all of the different ways in this book that Jesus is superior to all things. For instance, he's going to talk about how Jesus is supreme over Moses, how he's supreme over the priests of Israel, how he's supreme over the Old Covenant, how he is supreme in a whole host of things. But he begins by declaring that Jesus is superior or supreme to the angels. And this combats those false theologies about angels which were prevalent in that day. In fact, the entire rest of chapter 1 is all about this subject. The writer's main argument, if you notice verse 5, is that Jesus has a more excellent name than the angels. It says in verse 5 that Jesus is called the Son, God's Son. He is not a mere ministering spirit who is sent out to help those who receive salvation, as chapter 1 verse 14 says the angels are. For Jesus is God's eternal Son and has all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the authority that comes with it. As verse 4 says, He is much superior. So here's actually a point that I think is so very pertinent at Christmas time, at a time where we're so quick to elevate lesser things. We must carefully consider it the next time we too highly elevate things that don't measure up to Jesus Christ. We must think a little more carefully before we elevate other beings that are meant to serve the people of God, but are not God. And instead, the focus in December of each year should be upon the Son of God. So after those nine incredible points, shocking truths really about Jesus, I have a few applications for us for Christmas and for life, and then we're done. Number one, let me say that setting aside a day to honor Christ's birth is good, if indeed that day is about Him. 
There's nowhere in Scripture that says that we're to ever honor one day above another. There's no emphasis in Scripture that says that we're to have a day that we celebrate Christmas. My friends, we don't actually even know if he was born on December 25th. It's a day that, well, for a lot of historical reasons, has just been called the day. And that's okay. That's okay. And it's okay to set aside a day, I think, to honor the birth of Jesus Christ especially because it was such an enormous event One of the most miraculous things, that and the cross work of Jesus Christ, the most miraculous events that have ever occurred on this world, what a wonderful thing to celebrate that along with his death and his resurrection. His birth, his death, and resurrection. A great reason to celebrate. But if we're going to set aside a day, let alone an entire season for it, then we better make sure that it's actually about him. And I'll tell you, Everything around us, it feels like, pushes against that. And I'm not talking about the cultural stuff of taking the name Christ out of the word or or any of those things. I'm talking about the things that trip all of us up. All of the things that trip us up every other day of the 365 days of the year. The materialism, the self-focus, basically just getting our eyes off of the sun. Taking our eyes off of Christ. But if we're going to have a day where as a church and as the people of God, where we're going to honor the birth of Jesus Christ, then my friends, should it not be a day that's actually about Him? Can I plead with you to just make everything else secondary? I'll tell you, you'll appreciate this season a whole lot more if you just simplify it all and make it about Jesus The world is not going to end if the Christmas cards get sent out. It's not going to end if the most brilliant presents are not under the tree. It is not going to end if the meal isn't perfect. But I tell you, if Jesus Christ isn't the sustainer of the world, then the world ends. And the fact that he is the sustainer of the world means that we really have something to celebrate on December 25th. Secondly, added activity at this time of year is okay. And that's natural. As long as it helps you or it helps another person better focus on the real Jesus. So all of the stuff that we add on, fun things, good things, memories that we cherish all through our lifetimes, those things are good and all that activity is fine if indeed it ultimately helps us or helps other people better focus on the real Jesus Christ. We live in a culture that is pushing Jesus the spirit of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, out of just about everything. But yet there's one time of year where so many people will still say they celebrate Christmas. We live a day and an age where all the activity is accepted. You go to bush gardens and you hear Christmas music, and I'm not just talking about the Michael Buble fun stuff. Rich theological songs are being sung over the loudspeakers. It's amazing that that's even being done still today anywhere. But in a culture that adds so much activity, so much stuff upon this season and this day. My friends, let's cut through it surgically with a knife and make sure that what we do is actually about making our hearts, our minds, and the hearts and minds and others about the king who was born. Third, and this hits me at home because this is, this is me. I had to battle with this. But sentimentality about a baby in a manger or angels or anything else, it really just misses the point and is really unhelpful. Especially when we consider that something much more grand has actually been revealed. 
If our eyes are on the little things, it's so hard to put them on the big thing. There is a place for fond memories. There is a place for visual aids and wonderful little joys of the season. But boy, they can be such a trap. And we can so easily get caught up in false theology too that emphasizes other things over Jesus Christ. Finally this morning, this is maybe the exhortation I just want to leave with you. Your Christmas should be about the joyful honoring of Christ, the supreme Lord of all. In fact, in that sentence, you can really just cross out the word Christmas and you should say, your life should be about the joyful honoring of Christ, the supreme Lord of all. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we worship your good son. You take pleasure in him. You are well pleased in your son. You have bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, and to him everyone will bow. Lord, you have put him at your right hand. You have made him the heir of all things. He is the one who created the world with you, Lord, and sustains it by your side. And Lord, it is him that we exalt right now. Lord, as we see that Jesus was the purification of sins, I would ask that you would move in the hearts of people here who need to have a cleansing of sin, Lord, who need to have forgiveness, who need to have an assurance of your strength to combat the temptations of this life. Oh, Lord, would you help us to see Christ? Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have a Christmas season that is full of Jesus, that is about Jesus and brings honor to the ears of Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen.